Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Jordan. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. As the end of 2021 quickly approaches, many of us are thinking about holiday shopping and gatherings and planning our New Year's resolutions. But now is also the time to think about the inevitable filing of our 2021 taxes, as there is still time to take steps to improve our 2021 tax position. On this evening's show, we're discussing last minute tax strategies with our expert CPA and attorney, Kenneth Gibbs, of the Durham-based Thomas & Gibbs CPA accounting firm. Kenneth, again, thank you so much for being on the show, sharing your time and expertise with us. You are very welcome and I'm happy to be here. So it's always good to begin with who has the obligation, who has the obligation of filing taxes and where does that obligation come from? Right, so the the individual, um, I'll say, individual taxpayers and or business, depending upon who's the taxing entity, has the obligation to file. And that obligation comes from the Internal Revenue Code or basically the law that Congress has passed. All right. And so now you mentioned uh, Congress. And in the past two years, there have been some changes to the tax, tax laws as a result of COVID. Can you talk about some of these COVID tax-related laws that will have an impact on how individuals and businesses go about preparing and filing their taxes. Absolutely. So, so there were a number of tax laws passed in 20 and 21, uh, most of which were meant to help to stimulate or put money in um, in, in individuals' pockets or businesses' pockets due to COVID and you know the effect of that on their business. Uh, but but some of them and most of us have heard about the stimulus payments and you know uh, people would say well where is my stimulus payment and so if you had filed uh, an 18 or 19 tax return and qualified the government automatically sent you a stimulus payment and and there were three payments uh, the first came in a, on or about you know April 2020 for twelve hundred dollars then there was another one that came around January of 2021 for $600. And then finally, uh, with Biden coming into office, there was another $1,400 payment. So stimulus payments meant to stimulate the economy, put money in people's pockets. And then the question was, well, do I have to pay tax on this money? Mm. And generally speaking, no, you didn't. Um, It was tax-free money. And if you did not receive it, there was a way to receive it on your tax return that you'd file for either 2020 or 2021. That, that was one of the you know, items with the Tax Act. There, there are a couple of other items that affected many individuals. Uh, prior to, one would have to itemize their deductions, and we can talk about that later. 
um, in order to deduct charitable contributions, but these tax acts allowed individuals last year to deduct $300 of their chair of their cash charitable contributions, even if they did not itemize. Uh, that law is still in effect for 2021, but if you're a married couple filing joint, you can deduct up to $600. So even if you do not itemize, even if you don't have enough deductions to itemize, you're able to take advantage of uh, that provision. Well, let me let me just ask you, know, going back to the stimulus payment, now, there were mm -hmm. two different sets of payments. Mm -hmm. One directed basically to uh, consumers mm -hmm. uh, and uh, a lot having to do with uh, rental assistance and things of that nature. Now, is the rental assistance that people received taxable income or is that exempt from, uh, from taxes? <clears throat> So to my knowledge, if the landlord received rental assistance payments, that would be taxable income to them, to my knowledge. Um, I know that portion of the stimulus program uh, was one that there, there were lots of complaints about it because apparently the states did not get that portion um, up and running in time. But um, unlike the individuals. So the individuals receiving money and stimulus payments, that was not taxable. Uh, and there was also the business uh, entities uh, that with yeah. the, what are the PPP uh, loans, which uh, eventually became grants <laughs> for uh, some uh, people. Absolutely. So yeah, the number of programs for businesses uh, was we said a PPP loan or payroll protection uh, program. Uh, basically, the government you know, gave loans to smaller businesses. It started out with if you were less than 500 employees, and then the second round was 300 employees. Uh, so it, it was a loan uh, that you could use for qualified expenses, which were payroll, could be rent, could be benefits, things of that nature. If you used uh, the requisite amount for those qualified expenses, you could request a loan to be forgiven and many loans have been forgiven. In fact, most loans under that program have been forgiven. Uh, the, uh, and, and that was a great stimulus to, to businesses. Uh, there were also, there were a number of other true loan programs. Uh, one referred to as an idle loan, which was economic disaster incentive loan. And these were to small businesses and they came with uh, pretty uh, good interest rates and pretty great payment terms. Uh, those are true loans. They do have to be paid back. Uh, but again, over over a number of years and the interest rates were low. Okay. But with respect to the, the business loans that became grants, mm -hmm. are they exempt from, from, from taxes? They, they, they are. So um, uh, yes, they, they, they are. Uh, and just a quick point on that. So in other words, you know, the PPP loans, if they're forgiven, uh, that income was excluded from tax. So then the question became, okay, what about the expenses paid with those loans? Are they deductible? And so on the federal side, they clarified that even so the income was forgiven and the expenses paid with that loan was deductible. So that was a great deal. Uh, for businesses. North Carolina took a different position. North Carolina said, yes, the 
income is excluded for tax, but those expenses you paid with the with that are not deductible. So in effect, North Carolina was taxing businesses on those forgiven loans. Uh, North Carolina just passed the budget uh, within the past month, and um, they've actually pushed off the effective date of that to 2023. The effect of that is making those expenses deductible they're no longer added back and, and it's going to require lots of people with businesses like mine to file a lot of amended returns because uh, we added back all of those expenses in the 2020 tax return because that's what the law required so i, I guess the bottom line with all tax legislation is um, you know the federal government can interpret one way and the states have leeway to interpret it differently because of course you pay separately your federal taxes and your state taxes and that you know kind of underscores the complexity of this area and why it can be incredibly beneficial to seek um, expert advice um, so it, you mentioned the the itemized deductions and we'll we'll get into that in a minute but I want to just make sure as far as the COVID legislation that that um, had an impact on, on individual taxes for folks who will be filing their 2021 taxes um, for those who may not have, have yet received the stimulus payment, there is a way or I'm, I guess I should ask, is there a way when they are filing their 2021 taxes that they can still take advantage of those payments, even if they have not yet received them? Uh, that, that is correct, they can. Um, on the tax return, it's called a recovery rebate credit. So um, he, here's the interesting thing about that, um, be, because like with most tax law, there's uh, what we call AGI limits or adjusted gross income limits. So if your adjusted gross income, generally speaking, was under $150,000 as a married couple, you would, you would get the stimulus payment. Uh, those payments were sent out to people based upon their prior year tax return. So if you, if you received it, you're good. If you didn't receive it, we can, on your 2021 tax return, try to claim it under the recovery rebate credit. But if your income was actually too high that you shouldn't have received it, then you, you would not. So it's, those things are a little bit tricky when the government's trying to uh, put funds into the economy in a, in a pretty quick manner. You know, they, they, they use some shortcuts and that's one of the ones they did based on a prior year return. Well, you know, Ken, uh, I know that generally you have to pay taxes on all income that, uh, that you receive uh, during, the, uh, during, during the year. Uh, during this past year and a half, uh, a lot of people have been operating in the uh, gig economy. Uh, or off the books or under the table. Uh, and they have been able to sustain themselves with this under the table uh, earnings that they have received. What are their tax reporting obligations? And this is notwithstanding, not you know, the federal grants and things, but uh, money that people made 
uh, on their own out in the marketplace? What what are their obligations now? Yeah, that's a great question because you're exactly right. There's an internal revenue code that says income is income from whatever source derives. So whether it's legal or illegal, under the table, over the table, all of that income is reportable and, and potentially tax, taxable. So you still have an obligation to report and you know, file a tax return based on your income. Uh, there is an obligation on the payor, so the person paying, to issue, in some cases, a Form 1099, or if you're an employee at W-2, some type of a reporting form. But even if they don't, if the payor does not do that, you are still obligated as the payee or the recipient to, to file taxes, and that liability does not go away. And um, there, there are lots of people um, who have um, you know, gone to court or jail uh, because they have not properly reported their tax obligation. Well, the question is, is raised often you know, for people in the gig economy. Uh, how, how, how are they going to know? Yeah. Uh, how, how are they going to figure out that, uh, that I made money cutting grass or putting in some plumbing for my uh, neighbors or I had a, uh, a poker game going on during the weekend that I was able to earn money from? Uh, how, how is the government going to uh, figure out that uh, I made money from that and I owe taxes on it? Yeah, and, and while it's more difficult when, when you're earning money in that fashion, it's not impossible. You know, how does the government know? Well, a lot of times uh, they know because they're whistleblowers, right? People see how well you're doing under the table, and they have to <laughs> report their income because they're working, and they tell on you. That, that, that's one way. Uh, the, the other way is uh, depending upon who you're cutting the grass for, if you're doing it for business, that business has an obligation to report that, so they may issue a 1099. Um, if you know, if you as the service provider refuse to give your, you know, your social security or tax ID number, then that business is supposed to withhold and pay taxes over to government on your behalf. So lots, there's lots of ways that they can determine. But ultimately, I, I, I mentioned to people that lifestyle is also a way that people get picked up. Um, you, you know, because if you're earning money, um, you're, you're, you're probably out, you know, buying vehicles and houses and other things that, so that your lifestyle would indicate there is some income there. And, you know, if, if it's not being reported, that's another way they, they find out. And so the point to emphasize is that, that there is a legal obligation. And if one fails to pay their taxes, to file their taxes if they're required. Uh, there could be significant penalties. Um, there could be incarceration. Can you just talk a little bit about, can the um, penalties that one might suffer if they fail to file their taxes in a timely, within the time period? A absolutely. And, and, and that's a great question because um, I run into people often uh, more than I like, who have not filed for a number of years. And, you know, they, something brings them to the point of needing to catch up. Sometimes it's, in, it's an IRS inquiry. Sometimes they may, you know, want to refinance a loan or buy a house or something else that's making them, uh, you, you know, want to file. The problem with not filing is 
uh, or they, there's a failure to file penalty that's 5% of the tax due per month up to a 25% maximum. So let's say if you owed $10,000 in taxes, you, you automatically, there's another 25% added to that if you've gone more than five months. So now that bill is 12,500. There's also another penalty that's a half of 1% per month that continues to, to add up. So sometimes, and, and, uh, and, and this happens with older people sometimes who may not understand their filing obligation, you know, they've retired, but they end up um, owing a lot more tax when the return is prepared than they would have had they filed on time. This is the uh, Legal Eagle Review. And we're talking with uh, CPA and attorney uh, Kenneth Gibbs of the uh, Durham-based Thomas and Gibbs CPA accounting firm. And uh, Ken is uh, here with us every year uh, to talk about some uh, last minute tax tips uh, that should uh, help you. But uh, we're gonna take our break right now. I want you to, uh, to stay with us because Ken has a lot of uh, other advice uh, and information to provide to you. So we'll be right back. Good evening. My name is Caitlin Chesney, and I'm a current second-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and here is your Legal Eagle Review Spotlight. Did you know that a driver is considered to be legally impaired when their blood alcohol concentration measures 0.08 or higher? Alcohol severely hampers a driver's ability to safely operate a motor vehicle, impairing judgment and slowing reaction time. Here are some statistics about drinking and driving. One alcohol-related death occurs every 52 minutes, according to the NHTSA. Drunk driving causes more than 10,000 deaths every year, about one-third of all traffic-related deaths. In a recent year, more than 230 children were killed by drunk driving crashes. Drinking and driving cost more than $44 billion in deaths and damages annually. 25% of adults admit that they drink more during the holiday season. The period from Thanksgiving to New Year's season estimated 25,000 injuries from alcohol-related crashes. New Year's Day is the deadliest day for alcohol-related crashes, with 58% of crashes being related to alcohol. My name is Caitlin Chesney, and this is your reminder not to drink and drive this holiday season. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review. Thank you so very much for staying with us for this very uh, important discussion that we are having uh, this evening. We're talking with uh, attorney and uh, CPA uh, Kenneth Gibbs of the uh, Durham-based Thomas and Gibbs CPA accounting firm. And uh, he is, uh, as always, providing us with some uh, year-end tax tips, uh, things that uh, you need to know, that we need to know, uh, and that we need to uh, follow uh, as we uh, close out uh, this, uh, this year and prepare to enter uh, 2022. Uh, because whatever we do, the government is watching and they want their income. Um, 
With that, though, Ken, let me just, uh, just, just ask, and I'm going back now to the uh, reporting of uh, income. Uh, can you remind us uh, about the tax consequence or the tax responsibility of people who are receiving scholarships and other aid uh, to attend colleges and universities around since we are at NCCU? I think that is probably a very, very big uh, topic and concern that some people might have. So can you kind of talk to us about what the uh, reporting obligations are with respect to uh, uh, scholarships and grants that uh, people receive? Yeah, and, and that, that's always a question that people say, well, is this scholarship, is this money I receive taxable? So the portion of a scholarship that goes toward the tuition and fees, and I'll even say the equipment that's required for classes, um, if you're you know, at a qualified university, that, that's not, <clears throat> not taxable. <clears throat> the money that you're receiving, the portion that you may receive for room and board or other activities uh, is, could be taxable. So it's certainly reported, reportable. And if you know, it's more than your standard deduction or itemized, and if, depending upon how you file, it, it could be taxable. So it, you know, it's, it's a mixed bag. Uh, just because it's being given to you by the school or by other organizations, um, it could be taxable. And what is the responsibility of those groups and organizations and individuals who are providing scholarships and grants uh, to uh, people who are going uh, to uh, colleges and universities? Yeah, so those individual payors uh, should be reporting that as well on some type of a form, a 1099 or some type of a form like that. Uh, you, you, I guess, kind of like uh, our earlier discussion about things being uh, paid and not reported, that, that's another area where it oftentimes is not reported, and, uh, but it does not reduce the obligation of the receiver to you know, properly report their income. Ken, you had mentioned um, earlier during the, the first segment, um, you mentioned itemized deductions, standardized deduction or standard deductions. Can you um, share with us, just kind of give us a primer of the difference between itemizing your deductions and then taking the standard deductions? Um, and there was a, a recent change in the law in 2005 in 17, I believe, where um, the change has caused many folks who were itemizing to go ahead and just take the standard deduction. Uh, that, that is correct. So that was the uh, Tax Cut and Jobs Act. That was the um, act under uh, former President Trump where the itemized, the, the standard deduction for many people essentially doubled. So the decision as to whether I itemize or take the standard deduction. If I'm an individual, if I do not have itemized deductions greater than 12,400, I take the standard, married, filing joint, um, and, and those amounts for 2021 would be married, filing joint, 25,100, single, 12,550, and head of household, 18,800. So what does that mean? Well, that means if I look at my uh, the, the, the things that I would itemize would be deductible medical expenses, uh, 
taxes, mortgage interest, charitable contributions. So essentially looking at those items, if, they, if they're not greater than my standard deduction, then I'll simply take the standard deduction. What does that mean? It means the government's going to reduce your income by the amount of the standard deduction and you don't have to do anything else. You don't have to prove it. You don't have to document it or anything like that. Um, an itemized deduction may be better, but you do have to document those things. In charitable contributions, you need to have an acknowledgement letter from the charity, those, those sorts of things. Well, can you kind of uh, elaborate a little bit on uh, what constitutes a charitable uh, con contribution? Uh, contribution? Uh, because people um, sometimes confuse uh, the giving of money to those organizations and entities that are uh, tax exempt uh, and giving money to people out of the goodness of their heart. So what constitutes a, a valid uh, and deductible charitable contribution? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's another great question and uh, one that we deal with all the time in preparing returns. Uh, so it needs to be to a qualified charity. Well, what is a qualified charity? It's someone that the IRS has recognized and they have an exemption under code section 501c3. How do I know if the person I'm giving to is a qualified charity? Uh, you can look it up, generally speaking. Uh, you know, the other categories under there are, are churches and most churches would not have a 501c3. They're just exempt by statute. But, but, but a church, you know, state or local government entity would also qualify um, as a charitable contribution. Now, the key is you have to have an acknowledgement letter from the folks you're giving it to. So they need to provide you with written acknowledgement, the amount of the charity, uh, you know, the, the year. And they must also indicate that no goods or services were received in exchange for your contribution. And, and I'll just say this real quick. Um, and, and this was another change in the law back in uh, 17 or earlier. Uh, you, you know, many of us who have our favorite colleges, we would make a contribution in exchange for that preferential seating on the 50 yard line and take a charitable contribution deduction for that. that that's no longer allowed. Mm. Wow, that's a mean government. <laughs> so, so, so it truly has to be disinterested generosity. I am not receiving anything in exchange for my generosity. Mm -hmm. So for those folks who are, who are itemizing, right? So we've got a, a couple of more weeks before the end of the year. Um, you mentioned um, items that, that folks might include if they're itemizing their deductions. So medical bills, of course, charitable contributions. For those who are itemizing, do you have any suggestions on what they could do in these final couple of weeks of 2021 to try and improve their position or reduce their tax liability? Yeah, the, the, the charitable contribution is, is, is one that's ripe for it. You can do that up, you know, up until December 31st. Um, you can you know, look at your situation now and try and determine whether the contribution will benefit me this year. If it won't benefit you in 2021, but you still wanna give and it will benefit you in 2022, you could give it January 2nd as compared to December 31st. So a little bit of planning that you can, you can do around that. 
Um, uh, I, I meant to say this before when, uh, when the question was asked about what qualifies as a charitable contribution. Keep in mind when, you know, a lot of times because people have tragedies and, and you have these GoFundMe accounts that are, that are established, typically that is not a charitable contribution. That, that's a gift, okay, because you're not giving to a qualified charity. So I wanted to say that earlier, but just wanted to make that distinction. But, but certainly charitable contributions is one of those things that you can go up to the very last day. And I say that because if you write a check and it's postmarked on December 31st, it counts for the year. If you pay it through a credit card or some other electronic um, means, it counts for that year. But if it goes into January, even January 1st, it does not count for uh, the year that we're in. It would be the next year. So the thing to do would be to uh, load up on your uh, tithes and offerings and get them to the church uh, before uh, the reindeers come in? <laughs> Absolutely. And, and, and I'm sure every church and every pastor would appreciate uh, that happening. And, and WNCU is uh, a tax exempt well, uh, organization uh, as well, and uh, they're in a fund drive uh, right now, and those contributions are deductible uh, during this uh, period of time as well. That's a kind of uh, ad. There you go. There you go. <laughs> so, Ken, one of the things that you were mentioning, though, is it, you know, it does require some thoughtful consideration about whether it makes sense to do those additional charitable contributions now or make the determination whether those charitable contributions may be better um, utilized next year. What are some of the considerations that, that folks need to think about when they're trying to be strategic about say their charitable contributions? Yeah. So you know, one thing is to look, we were talking about the standard deduction before. So look at the standard deduction for your filing status. And if you're really close, but just below, then adding another, adding more charitable contributions, if it pushes you over the standard deduction, you may want to go ahead and do that this year. If it doesn't, but by paying it next year, it would allow you to be substantially over the standard deduction, so you'd want to do that. So, you know, even someone who, um, you, you know, may not want to take a lot of time to do that, well, quickly look at last year's return. You know, if you can look at the prior year return and see how close you were, and assuming things didn't change as much in the current year, that may be a hint. <clears throat> Again, what, what you're trying to do um, is just be strategic about money that you were going to give anyway. And, you know, does it matter if I give it this week or next week? Does it matter to my taxes? And, and it may. So um, I think taking a quick look at something like that would, would help. Related to that, um, so, it, you know, when, and I think you, you touched upon this very briefly, uh, with charitable contributions, I believe I read that for this year, for, for 2021, even if one takes a standard deduction, that there could be an opportunity to write off cash charitable contributions. Am I getting that right? That, that's, that is correct. Now, it is limited to $300 for you know, a single individual or head of household and $600 for someone that's married filing joint. But, but that is a benefit that did not exist prior to 2020 
and um, current law extends it to 2021. So that is correct. And I, I was gonna ask, just kind of looking at the mortgage interest rate because there's been a recent change, I believe, as it relates to uh, how much uh, you can deduct for the uh, mortgage uh, interest expense. So can you can you kind of talk about uh, what uh, what the, the requirements are there with uh, mortgage interest? Right. So so there were several changes a few years ago, but the biggest change now this is for someone who has a mortgage that's greater than seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars. <throat> the interest on that mortgage would be limited. Um, if it's below that, generally speaking, you're not going to be limited. However, uh, part of the change was, you, you know, we can have you know, a primary mortgage and some of us can have a second mortgage or a line of credit. That mortgage is supposed to be for the acquisition or improvement of the home. And, you know, some of us that have been around for a while, we could go out and get a line of credit and purchase a car with that, you know, through the line of credit or do something else that's not related to the home itself. So even though that line of credit or, or second mortgage loan may be secured by the home, the money is not actually used for that purpose. So there are some limitations regarding how that money is being used. Um, But, but if it's used for the acquisition or improvement, you know, if I go and, you know, you know, build an additional bedroom or, you know, porch or deck or fix up my home, then that mortgage interest is deductible. And, and that would relate to each piece of real estate that, uh, that the person uh, owns? <clears throat> so, yeah, that's a good question as well, because so it is for what's called a primary residence and a second home. So, you know, if I'm someone that, you know, my primary resident and I have a house at the beach or in the mountains or something like that, that limitation that we're talking about would apply to both of those properties. And if I have more properties with mortgages, I'm still limited to that primary residence and a second home. Um, it does not affect if I have rental property. Okay, so if I, if I have a mortgage on rental property, these rules that we're talking about with regards to itemizing interest does not, does not apply. You, you are able to deduct the interest on rental property. Okay, that would be quali uh, classified as a regular business expense rather than as a, uh, a mortgage interest expense. I, I, I would uh, yeah, there's some technical language where we wouldn't call it a business expense unless you are in the business of renting. But like for the average person who you know, may have one or more rental properties, they are able to deduct it against the income from that property. But most of those folks would say, I'm not in the trader business because if you are, there's some other rules that, that could apply. One of the things that Irv had touched upon are, are those folks who have uh, side businesses, the, the gig economy has created a number of entrepreneurs. And just as you've been talking about being strategic when it comes to your personal individual or, or married um, income tax. Can you talk about some strategies and tips that business owners and entrepreneurs, particularly small business owners who may not have the um, access to, to accountants and CPAs in the same way that larger businesses might, some, some things that they should consider as we come to the end of 2021? 
Absolutely. And and so, you know, with a lot of our small business clients who are looking at where they <clears throat> stood for the year, a couple of things they need to consider. One, if they have income, um, whether they were required to make quarterly income tax payments throughout the year. Okay. Well, <clears throat> one way, if they were, one way to reduce that obligation may be to look at are there things that I could purchase now before the end of the year that would actually reduce that income? And I tell people, hey, look, you know, look out over the next quarter if you needed to buy supplies or equipment or things of that nature. Go ahead and purchase them now so you could reduce the income for 2021. These were things you were going to buy anyway. And so you're just accelerating that purchase, reducing the income in the current year and reducing the tax or any potential liability there. The other thing and the big thing, I always look at retirement. Is there a way to put, a, is there, do you have income sufficient to put away additional funds for retirement? And, and you know, self-employment income is a great way to do that. Um, you know, I encourage employees to put as much away for retirement as they can. Um, but if you're self-employed, it gives you an additional opportunity to do that. All right, you're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking this hour about year-end tax tips and strategies as we're coming to the end of 2020. And we have with us here in our Zoom studio, CPA and attorney Kenneth Gibbs of the Durham-based Thomas & Gibbs CPA accounting firm. We're gonna have to take a quick break. We hope you stay with us. We'll be right back. Central University School of Law was founded in 1939 to provide opportunities for African-American students to become lawyers. Embracing our heritage, the mission of NCCU Law is to provide a quality, personalized, practice-oriented, and affordable education to historically underrepresented students from diverse backgrounds to increase diversity in the legal profession. We empower our graduates to become highly competent and socially responsible lawyers and leaders committed to public service and to meeting the needs of underserved communities. NCCU Law is excited to announce the creation of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center, made possible by the generous pledge of $5 million by Intel Corporation. The mission of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center is to produce technology-conscious lawyers who will use technology in alignment with the law school's mission to, one, facilitate the efficient, effective, and ethical practice of law, and two, increase the access of legal information and services to underserved communities. You can learn more about the Technology Law and Policy Center by visiting the NCCU Law website. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking this hour with Kenneth Gibbs, who is a CPA and an attorney, a proud alum of NCCU School of Law. And he is with the Durham-based Thomas & Gibbs CPA accounting firm. And this hour we're talking about year-end tax strategies and tips 
so that you can improve your position when you get ready to file your 2021 taxes. Uh, Ken, right before the break, you were talking about tips for business owners. And, and one of the things that you mentioned was looking at retirement and making sure that uh, individuals are doing a, a sufficient job of making sure that they're putting those retirement funds away. Can you talk just a little bit about how making sure that you are, use, are using income that you receive and putting that in retirement accounts, particularly if they are pre-tax contributions can benefit one by lowering their income and that could have an impact on the amount of taxes that they, that they have to pay. Yeah, that, that's absolutely correct. And, and businesses, unlike, even small businesses, unlike individuals, uh, can actually make these contributions after the end of the year. What do I mean by that? Well, you know, if you have a, there are lots of types of retirement plans. People are familiar with 401ks. You can, you can do that even if you're a single business owner. They have something called a solo 401k. Uh, you, of course, can do. Uh, others are a simple plan, a simple IRA plan. And, and each one of these plans have different amounts that you can contribute. There's another one called a SEP, which is a simplified employee pension plan. Um, in a broad sense, you can contribute up to about $58,000 to these plans depending upon how much you have uh, that may be put away in other plans that you have. So if you have an employer and this is really just a side uh, job, you, you may be limited, but you can still put money away and reduce taxable income. And you've got a lot of leeway uh, depending upon the type of plan. You could go up to September of the following year and make your contribution and have it apply to the previous year. Lots of flexibility there. In, in that regard, can you talk about, you know, the, the difference between tax deferred uh, income and uh, income that is uh, that you can put into retirement uh, fund and, and, and draw tax free interest on? Okay, so so tax deferred, it, it's, it's basically saying I am not going to pay the tax on it now, even though I've earned the income now, I'm going to pay the tax on it later generally speaking, when I take it out of retirement, that, that's, a, that's a deferral. Um, if I, and, and, and of course, many people have heard of um, traditional IRAs or Roth, and, and that applies to whether it applies to 401ks as well as other kinds of plans. Um, in a Roth type of account, what I'm doing is I pay tax on it currently. So I'm still putting money into a retirement account, but I'm paying tax on it currently. The benefit there is the money is in retirement earning interest or you know, gain capital gains. And when I take that money out to qualify distribution, I do not have to pay tax on it. So I am permanently excluding from tax the earnings on those retirement contributions. So under the first model, I pay tax on the contribution and the earnings when I take it out. Under a Roth scenario, I pay tax now and when I take it out, I do not pay tax on those earnings. And again, this is a, you know, a, a complex area and, and the best approach for an individual or a business owner will depend on everyone's kind of individual situation. And there's got to be some predict, 
predicting out of what, you know, things are going to look like five, 10, 15 years into the future. And so we're, we hope that those that are listening to the show um, are gaining some insight, but will also take, you know, what you've learned and what you've been exposed to and use it to, you know, become even better educated because it is a complicated area. And, and can just to, um, have you share your thoughts when it comes to certain communities, so particularly the African-American community, in your practice, do you have any thoughts on whether um, as a community, as a whole, we are as well educated when it comes to taxes and when it comes to uh, wealth generation and, and these strategies? Are we as well informed as, as we could be? We're, we're not as well informed as we could be. Uh, we are getting better. Um, but as you started off, you know, what you've got to do is you hear a concept and then and then go and check it out, learn more about it. So um, even things like, you know, I was talking about traditional versus raw, even what a lot of us are doing now, what we should do is look at our tax rate. So if my tax rate is high, I, I may want to put that in a traditional account. Why? Because I, I don't want to pay tax at a high rate. When my tax rate is lower, either in retirement or something else would happen in a particular year where my income went down and my tax rate went down, I could move money from this pre-tax account to a Roth. So uh, yes, we have to be very strategic about our finances. We can't ignore them. Um, we, we do need to look out long-term. Um, so that that means paying attention to what's going on in the economy. You know, are they proposing tax increases and, you know, at what level? So, yes, all of those things we have to have to really pay attention to. And not just for us, but for that legacy, those ones that are coming behind us and whatever we leave for them, we don't want that to be taxed at a high rate. Well, you know, also, uh, Ken, we're dealing with a period where despite the uh, pandemic, uh, there has been a lot of gains that people have been able to obtain in stock markets. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is bustling uh, now. And uh, the, uh, the indexes are, are going up. And uh, of course, they bounce back uh, and forth. Uh, at what point does a person have to uh, report uh, these uh, stock gains uh, for uh, income tax uh, purposes? Right. And, and so you're exactly right in the stock market. The, <clears throat> there's fluctuation every day, but certainly if you look out over the course of a longer period of time, a year or more, that stock market is continuing to go up. And as long as you are leaving your money in the stock market or in a particular stock, it goes up. That's called an unrealized gain. So we are not taxed on unrealized gains. When we dispose or sell a, sell a portion of it, that's a realized gain, and we are taxed on realized gains. <clears throat> so, you know, what should I be doing there? Well, if I have some stock and I want to stay in the market, but this stock has really increased in value and I'm afraid that it may go down, I want to sell a portion of it. I do that. I realize the gain. I may have some other stock that's been lower at a loss for a long period of time, I could sell that and I could offset those losses against the gain. So people who are sophisticated in investing, um, 
look at those things, look at the stocks that have unrealized gains, look at the ones that have unrealized losses. And if I can harvest those losses or, you know, sell, I can offset the gain and still not pay any tax. I could realize the income, but not pay any tax. There's also uh, in the, uh, you know, with 401ks and some of these retirement plans that offered opportunities for people to uh, take out loans, uh, to cash out early on some portions of it for medical emergencies and things of, uh, of that nature. What are the tax consequences of availing yourself of, uh, of, of those opportunities? Right. So, so first we have to see what does the plan allow? So if the plan has a loan provision, and you're correct that many times the loan provisions, certainly for, they're labeled hardship loans, but they don't always have to be a true hardship. You can access those funds, you are, and it's a loan, so you are repaying it with interest, but it's going back into your account, um, <clears throat> but it's a way for you to access the money, and by repaying it with interest, you're, you're therefore not losing you know, what it would be invested in, so it's still earning money. If, however, you do not pay the loan back, and sometimes people would leave a job with a loan against their 401k and they don't pay it back, then it becomes income to you. So you know, it's, it's a loan unless you don't pay it back, then it becomes income at that, at that point. But it, it, again, it's, it's a great way if you've got a 401k plan and it, it's a great way to access the money and still keep putting money away for retirement. And related to that, there are some folks who, um, decide they want to take their money out of their 401k or other retirement plans before they're at um, an age where it's anticipated that you would use those funds. Can you just talk very quickly about the tax consequences that folks may not be aware of um, and the pitfalls of doing that? Yeah, we, we generally say it's not a good idea to take money out of retirement, out of a retirement plan. It's not meant to be short term. It's meant to be long term. The government provides a disincentive in the form of a 10% penalty unless you have an acceptable reason for doing that and you know, medical or tuition, things of that nature. Uh, rolling it over. So if I leave one job and I want to take my money and put it in my new jobs 401k, that's fine. And, and even, if, even if you roll it over, you want it to be what's called it referred to as a trustee to trustee rollover. So you direct your IR, you know, you direct your 401k holder to send it to the new person and everything's fine. Uh, you can do it yourself. Uh, there are some limits and some, you know, be careful. You got 60 days to put it back, those kinds of things. But uh, you do not want to treat retirement money as a savings account. Let me put it that way. <laughs> and, you know, Irv was talking about stocks, and there are a number of, of apps that are available. So you have, you know, folks who may not have played the stock market before who are into it now. Uh, and we also see that phenomenon when it comes to cryptocurrency. So there are a lot of people who are purchasing Bitcoin and Dogecoin, and there are, you know, so many different types of cryptocurrency. Can you talk about the tax implications of either investing in cryptocurrency um, and also maybe even being paid in cryptocurrency? Yes. 
So, so generally speaking, you know, cryptocurrency and other digital assets from a tax standpoint are treated as capital assets. Well, what does that mean? It's the same thing we were talking about a moment ago where there's going to be gain or loss on a capital asset. You know, the value of these assets fluctuates. So if you receive cryptocurrency with a value of $100 and by the time you dispose of it, it's worth $150, you have a gain of $50. So just very similar to stock, it's either going to be short or long-term gain, and that's going to dictate the amount of tax that you, that you pay on it. If I'm paid in cryptocurrency, that's going to be considered ordinary. Well, why is that? Because I could have received money instead of this, you know, this digital asset, but I decided to, to get that. So the payment itself in cryptocurrency that's considered ordinary income. Um, and, and, and so the, the, the tax effects generally follow, you know, the classification of the, of the asset. Mm -hmm. And again, this is a, you know, I don't, I don't wanna beat a dead horse, but again, there, there's this complexity because when we're talking about cryptocurrency and the value of it, it is very volatile, it fluctuates a lot. So, uh, you having been paid in crypto, uh, as you noted, Ken, that would be treated as ordinary income. The tax consequences of that may vary because the value associated with cryptocurrency is, is so volatile. So it is suggested that uh, folks make sure that they, um, that they seek out professional assistance if, if they've got some complexity. So in a couple of months, we will be getting our paperwork together. Uh, you, I know from January to April, it's a very busy time for accountants. What can we do, individuals, married couples, business, small business owners in particular, what can we do to help make your job uh, as an accountant easier as you help us prepare our taxes? Yeah, I think if, if you start now, um, because... You know, many people forget about small jobs that they've had throughout the year. So, uh, but uh, you know, W two every W two that you uh, receive, no matter the amount, uh, needs to be included with your taxes. There, there's so much electronic reporting now, um, and uh, taxpayers will often get a notice a year or two later when they filed their 2019 return, and they said, "Well." Uh, here's what you reported on your return. Others have reported this and, you know, you, you owe us. So again, looking at, you know, just trying to think about the year. What have I done? What have I invested in? You know, do I, do I have a 1099 or a statement from this? Uh, what have I spent that may be deductible? And particularly if you are a small business owner, uh, I cannot stress the importance of keeping good records. And, um, you, you know, when you, when you sit down with taxpayers, and they have a recollection, but not documentation. There, there's not a whole lot you can do for them unless they're able to document the transaction because um, in, in our business, uh, we're, we're also subject to preparer penalties if we don't ask reasonable questions and get you know, reasonable documentation to support deductions as well as income. So uh, those are the kinds of things you can, you can do right now. Just start thinking about the year and documenting the documentation for, uh, for those things. And, and many of them will be mailed to you during the month of January, but uh, 
Um, I, I have clients who are actually afraid to open up mail, particularly if it comes from the IRS or uh, other government authorities. You, you might as well open it up. It's not going to change. Well, one other, you know, kind of taking you back just a little bit, uh, Ken, but uh, income earned by children, mm -hmm. uh, particularly as we work through this gig economy, uh, where children, uh, uh, and I'm talking about under 18, mm -hmm. uh, were receiving uh, payment for work that, uh, that they were uh, doing. What are the uh, tax reporting uh, responsibilities for the children as opposed to the parent? And how are those payments kind of, or those in, that, uh, that income kind of uh, subsumed into the uh, tax reporting requirement of the uh, parent? Right. So if the, if the child has what's called unearned income, and I'm talking about, you know, interest, dividends, capital gains, um, those things can generally be reported on the parent's return. But what is it I'm talking about? I'm talking about the parents have given the children some money or the grandparents, and they put it in an account and they're earning um, a return on that. So those can generally be reported on the parent's return. If it's earned income, if the child is actually able to work and you know they've got a W-2 or, or something of that nature, um, they may be able to file their own return and the parent can still claim them, if you will, as a, as a dependent. Um, and they'll have their own tax liability for earned income. Not saying they'll owe any taxes because they still have that standard deduction. And we know that's about $12,550. So you know, the, the child that's out working in a restaurant, you know, earning a couple of thousand dollars, although they have to report it, may not actually owe any any taxes. All right, so we are unfortunately out of time, but we'd like to thank our guest, Kenneth Gibbs, who is a CPA and attorney with the Durham-based Thomas & Gibbs CPA accounting firm. We hope you've enjoyed the show and we hope that you will take this information and uh, build your knowledge and, and your understanding and share it with your friends and family. And we can, we're gonna go ahead and put a bug in your ear right now. We'd like to have you back on the show before April so you can share some other tips as we are getting our taxes ready for filing um, in April. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.